Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 36. The superscription here says, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Now, this is an interesting psalm. It is very similar to Psalm 1, only in reverse. In Psalm 1, you get the classic theme of two ways or two roads. So Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then the psalmist talks about all the blessings associated with walking on that road. Then Psalm 1 in verse 4 starts talking about the other road. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So there's the contrast. We've got a good road that leads to blessing and life and a bad road that leads to diminishment and ultimately death. And then at the end of the psalm, you have an encouragement. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So obviously there we're being encouraged to pick the right road, to play the long game, look at the whole picture, and to remember that nobody gets away with anything. So don't make short-term evaluations. God is watching. He's keeping notes. And in the end, the people on the good path will be rewarded and the people on the bad path will come to a sudden and catastrophic end. Understanding that, living in light of that, is the essence of biblical wisdom. That's the worldview of the Bible in a nutshell. There's blessing over here with God. There's cursing over there in the place of rebellion. So where are you going to stand? What, which road are you going to choose? Life or death? Those are the options. Now here in Psalm 35, we have, again, the same basic contrast. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary introduces Psalm 35 by saying, This is a psalm of powerful contrasts, a glimpse of human wickedness at its most malevolent, and divine goodness in its many-sided fullness. Few psalms cover so great a range in so short a space. Closed quote. So as I said, this is very similar to Psalm 1, only in reverse. It begins with a complaint about wickedness, and it moves to a celebration of faithfulness, and it ends in verses 10 to 12 with a prayer. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, the first word in this verse in the Hebrew is actually neum, which is usually translated as oracle or utterance. So deep in the heart of the wicked person, there is a voice. There is an oracle, not of God, but of self, of sin, of desire. There, there is a voice that whispers everything he wants to hear, everything the wicked person wants to hear. It encourages him to do whatever he wants. It promises him pleasure without consequence. That's the voice that the wicked man nourishes, and there is no fear of God before his eyes. And of course, that's the complete opposite of how David describes himself in Psalm 16. 
In Psalm 16, verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. So David says, my face is turned outward. My ear is turned upwards. I'm looking to God for direction. As the eye of the servant girl is on the hand of the master, so my eyes are on you, God. That's what David says. And that's good. That's, that's wise. According to the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you are not looking at the Lord, if you are not constantly conscious of his presence, then you are probably headed for trouble. W.S. Plumer says here, when a man has no fear of God, he is prepared for any crime. Close quote. Spurgeon goes even further here. He says, Those eyes which have no fear of God before them now shall have the terrors of hell before them forever. Closed quote. So it all begins with the direction of your eye. What you look at, what you listen to, what you lean towards, what voice and what source you prioritize. That determines it all. All of life takes place downstream from that decision. That's what David is saying here. The wicked man, he's listening to the voice arising out of his own twisted soul. He is self-referential and loving it. Verse 2 says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So, so the voice tells the wicked person whatever he wants to hear. There won't be any consequences for that decision. There's no final judgment. There's no God who sees. You're doing great. You're not half as bad as that guy over there. Thomas Scott says here, The wicked man not only disguises his crimes or intentions from others, but through the excess of self-love, he becomes his own flatterer, calls his vices by soft names or mistakes them for virtues, and deems his conduct justifiable, perhaps meritorious, when in fact it is a hateful compound of impiety, injustice, and malevolence, and will very soon prove to be so. Closed quote. Verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Again, what you think about becomes who you are. Listen to what David says about himself in Psalm 63, 5-7. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings... I will sing for joy. So David says, I'm happy and filled with praise because at the end of every day, as I lie down upon my bed, I'm thinking about the Lord. I'm talking to the Lord. I'm focused on the Lord. But this guy over here, the, the, the wicked guy in Psalm 36, 1 to 4, he's thinking about evil things on his bed. He's planning the next day's mischief. And so the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He doesn't do anything good. He leans toward and drifts toward that which is evil. So again, the whole idea here is that who you are in the dark, who you are in your heart, is who you become eventually outside. As a man thinks, so he is. As a man fantasizes, so he will become.
the mind leads. So be careful what voices you allow to dominate inside your head. Bring the Lord in there, as David does. Talk to the Lord. Think about the Lord. Listen to the Lord. And his goodness will fill you and come flowing out of you. And that's where David goes next. Look at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Now, remember, the energy and the, the dynamism stylistically of this psalm is affected by means of contrast. So Tim Keller, for example, says here, in contrast to the claustrophobic, self-absorbed nature of sin, the love of God is as high as the heavens, majestic as the mountains, and inexhaustible as the ocean. God's love is like a land of endless delights, close quote. And that's it exactly. Why would you live a life of inward, narcissistic, petty, self-serving individualism when you could delight yourself in Almighty God? He is loving. He is true. He is righteous. And he's infinitely and unfathomably wise. David says, your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. Why would anyone want a God they could completely understand? Such a God wouldn't be God. He would just be the voice bouncing around inside our own heads. No, no, no. We want a God who says things we don't entirely understand. We want a God that sees things we don't. And thankfully, there is such a God. The God who sits in the heavens. The God whose judgments are like the great deep. I love what Spurgeon says here. He says, God's dealings with men are not to be fathomed by every boaster who demands to see a why for every wherefore. The Lord is not to be questioned by us as to why this and why that. He has reasons, but he does not choose to submit them to our foolish consideration. Close quote. Sometimes people will say, I don't believe in God because I don't understand how a good God could allow so much suffering in the world. But when you say things like that, you are making the limit of your understanding the limit for God. No, no God can exist beyond my intellectual capacity. That's what you're saying. No God can exist who does things I can't understand. Well, friend, that leaves you then with nothing but the voice inside your own head. That's very sad and entirely unnecessary. If there is a God, then wouldn't we expect him to see things we don't? Wouldn't we expect him to know things we don't? Wouldn't we expect him to work to a schedule that stretches far beyond the limits of our puny lifespans? Wouldn't we expect him to see the whole board and to play the long game and to keep secrets from beings far down the food chain such as us? So that's not a reason to doubt God, according to David. That's a reason to delight in God. Friend, you don't need to understand everything. Just enjoy. God obviously has things in hand. That's what David is saying. Man and beast, you save. God is saving people, and he is providing for nature. The world hasn't stopped spinning. So God obviously has a plan, even if we don't know what that plan is. 
one thing you can count on is that God loves us. God didn't create us because he needed us, but he does love us. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't need us because he exists in perfect relationship within himself, but he does love us. And David rejoices in that. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Now, scholars tend to point to two possible meanings for that metaphor. First of all, it could be a reference to the wings of the cherubim on the ark. So to take refuge in the shadow of your wings could mean to find refuge in covenant worship, to trust in the fact that God is with his covenant people. His feet touch down in the midst of their worship. He is here, and we take refuge in that. Now, secondly, and I think it would be fair to call this the majority view, the metaphor could refer to nature, how a mother bird will hover down and cover her baby chicks from fire or hail or wind under the shadow of her wings. So we see that, for example, in Psalm 91, and Jesus talks like that, uses that metaphor in Matthew 23, 37. So I'm inclined to go in that direction. What's interesting here is the universal scope. David doesn't say, the children of Israel or your people take refuge under the shadow of your wings. He says, the children of mankind do that. Willem van Gemmeren says that the use of that phrase bears out God's universal concern for mankind. God's love extends to all his creation, both man and beast, verse 6. The general reference to him as God, Elohim, points to his love as an expression of his involvement as the creator. The creator protects, feeds, and gives drink. All creatures exist by the goodness of the royal host, closed quote. So God is a good creator in a general sense, and yet it is possible to know him in a more intimate sense. We begin to get into that in verse 8. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Again, there is an idyllic sense to these words, maybe better to say an Edenic sense. The word translated from Hebrew as delights in the ESV is actually the plural form of the word Eden. So zooming out, the psalmist is saying that God is good. The world he created is good, but there are wicked people in it. That's David's lived experience, we might say. And he is thinking and praying his way through that in this psalm. So God is good. And those who know him know that he is good. They feast on his abundance. They are refreshed. They are glad. W.S. Plumer says here, the figure points to guests entertained at a feast in God's house. So God isn't the problem. His goodness isn't the problem. Look at verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So life is still there in God for all who know him. And light is still there in God for all who come to him. Now, I can't help but be reminded by this verse of that great line from C.S. Lewis in his essay, Is Theology Poetry? He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Close quote. That's so good. There is a way of seeing the world 
that comes from being inside an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And David is in that world in an Old Testament sense. He knows God. He has experienced his grace and mercy. He has eaten and drunk from the bounty of the Lord's table. So he is inside, as it were. He's from that place. He's in that place and looking out and being realistic. He's looking out from that place and seeing the present state of the world and all the, the, the problems and the conflict and the darkness. So there's a tension there. There's a contrast. And that dynamic, that contrast informs the final three verses of the psalm. I love how Derek Kidner introduces this final section. He says, The psalmist finds himself stationed on the disputed ground between human wickedness, verses 1 to 4, and divine grace, verses 5 to 9. So he turns to urgent prayer. That's exactly right. Look at verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So the reality right now is that in this good world that God created, there are people who are in active rebellion and hostility toward their creator and toward their fellow creatures. See verses 1 to 4. And that's an odd state of affairs, as we all must acknowledge. But thankfully, it will not last forever. That's the message of the wisdom literature in the Bible, in a nutshell. All the wisdom literature is saying, it is wise to remain faithful to God, even if it doesn't always pay off in the short term, even if the wicked appear to make some short-term gains. It is wise to be faithful to God, because at some point in the future, once his plan and providence have worked out their various purposes, the wicked will be wiped off the board. The rebels will be routed and removed, and only the righteous will remain. So play the long game and pray the long game. Pray for God's mercy to sustain you in this temporarily fallen and hostile world. The prayer in verse 11 sounds like a line from the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how faithful people pray while we wait for the accomplishment of God's purpose. Now, verse 12 is prophetic in nature. As if to encourage his fellow worshipers, David says, There the evildoers lie fallen. The NIV brings that out a little clearer. It says, See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. And this, of course, is no different than the New Testament eschatological expectation. In Matthew 13, 40 to 43, Jesus says, So will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Close quote. We might adapt that to our context here in Psalm 36 and say, He who has eyes, let him see. Learn to see the world this way from inside the house of the Lord, from inside your intimate relationship with him as creator through faith in Jesus Christ. 
go into that place and see the world through that lens. See your own momentary troubles and afflictions through that lens. See the truth. See the end. And live and pray accordingly. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.